Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in uh, Nazi Germany in World War II. He gave his life. Um, and he wrote the following. Who among us will celebrate Christmas correctly? That's a good question, isn't it? How do you celebrate Christmas correctly? This is what he says. Whoever finally lays down all power, all honor, all reputation, all vanity, all arrogance, all individualism beside the manger. Whoever remains lowly and lets God alone be high. Whoever looks at the child in the manger and sees the glory of God precisely in his lowliness. That is the way to celebrate Christmas correctly. And um, that takes us to the passage of Scripture that I want us to be looking at this morning from the New Testament book of Luke. Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55, Mary's song of praise. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. It's on page 856 of your church Bibles. And you can follow along with me. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, and uh, please feel free to take uh, one of uh, the copies of the Scripture that's in the pouch in front of you and receive it as a gift from this church family. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. It's the word of the Lord. A few Christmases ago, uh, my sons uh, bought their dad uh, some guy movies, about a half a dozen of them. My favorite among them was the movie Gladiator, that fictitious Roman story about Maximus Decimus Meridius, remember when he reveals himself? To the wicked Commodus, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the northern armies, general of the Felix Legions, loyal servant to the true emperor Marcus Aurelius. Not that I've seen it a time or two. <laughs> and he does it in that Australian accent that he does so well, you know. Can't imagine how it would have been with his Oki accent. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. It just doesn't have the ring to it, does it? just doesn't stick you like that other accent. Well, anyway, 
you know, the movie begins, he defeats the German uh, barbarians, and, and, and the emperor Marcus Aurelius wants Maximus to succeed him and to go back to Rome and end the corruption and turn the empire back into a republic, you know, and, and, and but Commodus, the emperor's son, betrays Maximus, right? And Maximus loses everything, and he becomes a slave. He becomes a gladiator in the Colosseum, and so, and so general who became a slave, who became a gladiator, who defied an emperor, right? Love that movie. Reminds me of Christmas. No, it does. Not not the part where he whacks the guy's head off with those two swords. Those are cool special effects. (laughs) It's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is, is that the movie is about strength through weakness. That's really what it's about. From, from a position of weakness, Maximus is able to accomplish the very thing that he couldn't accomplish from a position of strength, right? That's what the movie is about. The movie is about how the hero warrior fulfills his mission out of weakness instead of out of strength. There it is. Now, that's really important to remember because that's what we just read here in our verses. This most famous Christmas song, the song of Mary, the Magnificat is what this has been called. The Magnificat. Why is it called the Magnificat? Because back when Latin was very much alive, uh, the Bible was written in a translation of Latin. And in these verses, the very first word of the Latin translation is magnificat. Magnificat. Magnificat anima mea dominum. My soul magnifies the Lord. It's the song that Mary sang when she arrived at her cousin Elizabeth's place. And then Mary found that Elizabeth herself was expecting John the Baptist. And upon their greeting, John the Baptist leaped in Elizabeth's womb. And Elizabeth cried out uh, in Luke chapter 1, verse 42, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then in verse 43, And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me. That's very important. Because in Luke 1 and 2, the word Lord appears 23 times, all in reference to Israel's God, except here, the same word referring to Jesus. Now what is Luke trying to tell us about the baby Jesus? You see? See what's going on in this picture? Two women, two women, one married and two old to have children, yet has conceived. And then there's another woman, so very young, unmarried, has had no relations, and yet by the power of the Holy Spirit, she is expecting the greater miracle. What's God up to? Well, that's why Mary magnifies the Lord. 
because of what he's doing. Because the Lord in these verses is portrayed as a divine warrior, a gladiator. Someone who has opened the heavens and is invading earth himself. And he's fighting for his people on behalf of his people. He's fighting to rescue his people and bring his people back. But he's not fighting the way we would expect him to fight. In Gladiator, Maximus wins the first battle, but ends up losing everything. Status, position, titles, family. In the last battle, though, he loses, and yet in doing so, wins everything on behalf of another. That's why it's a great Christmas story. What is God doing here? That's what this song is about. This song is all about what God is doing. I mean, look, at God is the subject of these verses, huh? He has done great things. He has shown strength. He has scattered. He has brought down. He's exalted. He's filled. He's sent away. He's helped. He has spoken. God's doing all of this. He's the subject. He's the subject. Again, so important to understand because the gospel, our faith, it's not about us. It's, we're not the subject of our faith. The gospel is not about what you can do for God. It's about what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. The gospel is not, at its core, behavior modification. The gospel is not, at its core, becoming a more moral person. See, that would make you the subject of the gospel, and you're not. We're not. God is. God is the gospel. The gospel is 1 Timothy 1.15. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's the gospel. The gospel is Romans 4.25. Christ was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. The gospel is 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness for by his wounds you have been healed. The gospel is 2 Peter 3.18. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body. He was made alive by the Spirit. That's the gospel. The gospel is Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's the gospel. This is, this, this is a gospel song. Mary's bold assertion of what God, the divine warrior, the gladiator, is doing for and on behalf of his people. So then... What is he doing? What is he doing? Well, these verses say clearly. He's lifting up. He's bringing down. He's advocating. He's opposing. He's fighting for. He's fighting against. And he's doing so in his good time. Let's just unpack this, starting with lifting up. He's lifting up. God is lifting up. Mary, Mary tells us this in the early part of this song. She identifies 
as being of humble estate. That's what's behind verses 48 and 49. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary is proclaiming how God, her Lord, is looking upon the overlooked, and she's identifying, self-identifying with the overlooked. She's been overlooked. She's been overlooked by her world, overlooked by her culture. Mary's from the small village. She lived hand to mouth. When she and Joseph finally go to the temple to offer their sacrifice after the birth of Jesus, what, what kind of an offering do they, do they give? They give a an economically overlooked offering, those two pigeons. And she's not only overlooked economically, she's overlooked socially. Why is she at Elizabeth's? Well, is it not because she's trying to provide a buffer for the ridicule of her village for being unmarried and with child? Yet in that estate, she magnifies God, not herself. She doesn't draw attention to herself. Mary, Mary is not singing proudly about her humility. Martin Luther put it this way, those who are truly humble don't know that they're humble. Mary, Mary was just anonymously doing life in her little village. She lived quietly. She became engaged. She didn't attend a high school where the commencement speaker would tell her to dream big. She would just live a quiet life. She was a, had an orthodox faith, engaged to a godly man, and they'd have a family, and there they would live and try to steer clear of the Roman oppressors. And then Gabriel shows up and rocks her world. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So Mary's song is not about her humility. It's about God's strength. I mentioned Martin Luther earlier. And this is, this is what he had to say in his sermon hundreds of years ago about these verses. God allows the godly to be powerless and oppressed so that everyone thinks they're done for, yet even in that very moment, God is most powerfully present, though hidden and concealed. And when the power of man fails, the power of God appears. When the oppression is ended, the the one sees what strength lies below the weakness. Even so, Christ was powerless on the cross. And yet he was most mighty there and overcame sin, death, hell, the devil, and all ill. You see? Strength through weakness. The lifting up of the humble. God is looking upon the overlooked. And some of you feel that way today. Some of you feel, you come here today, you feel over, overlooked by a, that prospective job that didn't pan out, overlooked by that you know, prospective relationship that you just, or just, it didn't happen. Overlooked by a prospective school. You know, you wanted to make the team or make the grade or make the cut and it didn't happen and now you're grieving and you're aching. And you don't feel about God the way you used to. 
and you're sitting here and you're wondering, what's, what's gospel news for me? What is that? All I can tell you is about a little 11-year-old girl named Amanda Burton. Um, I did her funeral service this week. She was in our children's ministry. She came a couple times a month. Uh, Guests of uh, Brian and Helga Eichelberger from our church here. Amanda um, was born with underdeveloped heart and lungs. She was in the hospital the first two years of her life. She did not learn to walk until she was two years of age. Um, And she had a special affinity for those in our church who used to walk her because she knew what that was like. Um, And in light of all of that, she was just the happiest little girl. She, She would come up to me after services. Last time I saw her, it was right here. She came up. Sometimes, uh, you know, we'd visit for a little while there by the Welcome Center, and, uh, you know, I would get down on one knee and, you know, so I could get her, make eye contact with her. And um, I remember one time she was just so happy. She was just speechless. She didn't say anything. She just patted me on the head (laughs) and then ruffled my hair. Right before second service. (laughs) That was Amanda. And the lives that she had impacted uh, who were at her service the other night here, my goodness. Um, You know, I found out from Helga, who had been her nurse, Uh, since Amanda was like four. So for seven years, Helga took care of her. I found out from Helga that Amanda wanted to be a preacher. She wanted to be a preacher like me. And so that's why she would come in and she would always sit in an aisle seat so she could get a good view. And then Helga... um, you know, would encourage her because when Amanda would get home, she'd turn on the TV, and so she'd watch other, you know, other. She'd watch TV preachers like Charles Stanley, and so Helga got her little navy jacket so she could put it on, and so she would have her Bible, and she would just be pacing the floor back and forth, preaching away. I did not know that. This precious angel with blonde hair and beautiful eyes, she, um, and a week ago Saturday, she was watching TV with her dad. And, um, and very quietly, her heart stopped. And she died. This, this sweetheart of humble estate, profoundly impacted lives of nurses and teachers and students and She wanted to be a preacher like me, but I told the congregation, I said, I want to be like her because of the impact that she had. She preached with her life. So you're here and you're feeling overlooked. You know, I just present to you the life of this little 
11-year-old girl whom the world would say is overlooked. You see. Oh, but God had looked upon her and used her. That's how he does it. That's how it works. When human power ends, divine power begins. Brennan Manning, in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, wrote this. The kingdom belongs to people who aren't trying to look good or impress anybody, even themselves. They're not plotting how they can call attention to themselves, worrying about how their actions will be interpreted, or wondering if they will get gold stars for their behavior. 20 centuries later, Jesus speaks pointedly to the self-focused and futile efforts of performancism. He speaks to those of us caught up in boasting about our victories in the vineyard, to those of us fretting and flapping about our human weaknesses and character defects. Listen, the child doesn't have to struggle to get himself in a good position for having a relationship with God. The child doesn't have to create a pretty face for himself. The child doesn't have to achieve any state of spiritual feeling or intellectual understanding. All that child has to do is happily accept the cookies. The gift of the kingdom. And God gives. He lifts up the humble. Let him do that to you today. Because there's an alternative that we really don't want to consider. But we should. Because Mary sings about it. God who lifts the humble and God who brings down the proud. Verses 51 to 53. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and the rich he has sent away empty. These are all the same people, by the way. God's not condemning the wealthy or the royalty for their wealth or status per se, nor is he blessing the poor for their poverty per se. Because the Bible always speaks of two kinds of rich people and two kinds of poor people. There's the godly rich and the ungodly rich. There's the godly poor and the ungodly poor. And these verses are about how God lifts the godly poor and how he brings down the ungodly rich. Their ungodliness is fueled by their pride and at the heart of their pride is the myth of self-propulsion. Self-propulsion. One author put it this way. Most people try to live by self-propulsion. You know propulsion, that, that, that forward drive that moves an object from point A to point B. Self-propulsion is when I try to act like the driving force in my life. Self-proportion is the idea that I am the one that makes myself move. Self-proportion is the message of the poem Invictus. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Self-propulsion leads you to think of yourself as a stage actor who wants to run the whole theatrical show. Who's trying to forever manage the lights and the ballet and the scenery and the blocking and the rest of the players in his own way. And if his arrangements would only stay put, if only people would just do as he wished, well, the show would be great. What 
happens. It's not a great show. It doesn't come off well. And then he decides to exert himself even more. <laughs> and, and then think about what happens if all of the actors decide to live by the myth of self-propulsion, to control the production at the same time. Each one with a different idea about how the play should be written. And everybody's thinking, I'm trying to create happiness. And nobody's happy. There's no peace. No peace, just chaos. No contentment, just tragedy. (laughs) The myth of self-propulsion. Here's the deal. Listen, God will never stop being God. And God's never going to give up his throne. And God doesn't share his glory. And when God lifts up the humble and when he brings down the proud, do you realize he does this with very little effort? Very little effort. God God never has to heave or strain. God's strong arm never gets sore, ever. God doesn't take ibuprofen. He just speaks. He just speaks. And his will is done. Why? Luke 1, 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. That, that, that verse literally says, for no word of God is feeble. God never speaks a feeble word, ever. See? So, you know, imagine Caesar in his palace and Jesus in the manger. You tell me who looks more like a king. What would you do if you were in Bethlehem at the time and you had to choose to pledge your allegiance between one or the other? A baby boy who excited a few rugged shepherds or the ruler of the known world with an army of thousands at his command? Hmm? Who's more powerful, Caesar or Jesus? Be careful because things are not always the way they appear. You know, our faith, Christianity, teaches a, a radically different idea about power. I mean, when Jesus was crucified... I mean, he appeared as a dying, weak man at the hands of the strong. Pilate appeared to have authority and power. We have no king but Caesar, the people shouted. Can you imagine the Christians in the Roman Empire back then? I mean, they must have, they must have seemed like freaks to their culture. Who are these Christians? They're just a bunch of slaves who worship a crucified criminal? What's up with that? Caesar ruled by conquering lands. Christ ruled by conquering sin and death and the grave. He ruled from the cross, bearing the full weight of God's wrath towards evil and then rising again to newness of life. And yet, what do we celebrate each Christmas? It's not the census. It's Emmanuel, God with us. The birth of Christ teaches us something about weakness. And it teaches us something about our God. Our royal God who became a servant. The infinite God who enclosed himself in a woman's womb. This almighty who was wrapped in swaddling clothes and placed in a manger. The powerful God who made himself vulnerable. That's who we worship. He lifts up the humble. He brings down the proud. And he does all of this in his good time. 
in his good time, in the fullness of time. That's what's behind verses 54 and 55 as the song concludes. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So so the promise God gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, I, I will make you into a great nation and through you all nations will be blessed. Finally, that promise is being fulfilled here in this song. So Mary is magnifying the God who keeps his word. So don't quit. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. I mean, how easy it is for us to do that, you know? Especially, uh, you know, our church family is missional and outwardly focused. And how easy it is, it is for us to experience a sort of compassion fatigue, right? Because the under-resourced, you know, the need feels endless and relentless. And the truth is, this side of heaven, you're right. You're right. But God will come through. He keeps his promises. So then pray. Read his word. Take a nap. Rest. And trust God. Galatians 6, 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. And I think that's why Mary sings this song, you see, singing to encourage and then to invite us to sing as well. You notice in these verses here, they look kind of stylistic with some of the rest of the way Luke 1 is written. Not exactly narrative, it just breaks out in some sort of a poetic style that's intentional there. Luke, the author, is writing to someone named Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus, he says in Luke 1. He's writing based on eyewitness testimony, and he is stylistic in his writing. And one of the features of ancient rhetoric is that at key points in the story, when something really important is about to be emphasized, just as in like a Broadway musical, A song breaks out. Luke wants Theophilus to understand the significance of this song. And so he just slows the pace of the narrative. He wants Theophilus to think about what's happening. So as in a Broadway play, Mary, who has been speaking with Elizabeth, now in song faces Theophilus and says, Join me in this song Sing with me. Magnify the Lord with me. Theophilus, you're magnifying someone with your life because that's what you're created to do. Your life is a magnification factory. Now, who is it you're magnifying, Theophilus? Are you magnifying God? Are you magnifying the Lord? His work, his way? Or are you magnifying self? Or you just live as if he doesn't exist? Theophilus, your name means lover of God. Are you? You hear what's going on? This, now it's getting personal. <laughs> this is an invitation to celebrate and magnify what God is doing, to sing, sing. And, and, and so we sing and then we keep reading and as we keep reading through the Gospel of Luke, we realize that when 
Jesus grows up, he becomes the song of Mary come to life. Yeah. So I, I, I just picture Mary telling Jesus when he's a boy about her visit with the angel and how the angel said, for nothing will be impossible with God. And later on as an adult, Jesus would teach and what would he say? For nothing is impossible with God. Where did he get that? Where did he get that? And then when Jesus fed the 4,000 and later on the 5,000, where did that come from? Verse 53, he's filled the hungry with good things. And then when blood was streaming down his face before the self-propelled pilot who said, don't you know I have the power to put you to death? Jesus responded, you'd have no power over me if it weren't given to you from on high. Where'd that come from? What about that? Verse 52, he's brought down the rulers from their thrones. And then when Christ was on the cross and a terrorist said to him, a terrorist, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, I will. You'll be with me today. Where did that come from? Came from verse 53. Remembering the merciful. Wow, Jesus is the song of Mary come to life. Will you join her in singing? Will you? What song are you singing today? Every, every soul magnifies something. And all of us sing. Self-propelled people sing to magnify themselves. Humble people. Lovers of God. Magnify the Lord. Which are you? However you answer that question, however you answer that question, determines whether or not you celebrate Christmas correctly. 